welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks meet the geeks, but everyone retains their lunch money. On today's special episode, we will explore the Olympic Games. I recently had the good fortune of being asked to facilitate a colloquium for master's students at St. Mary's College of California, and many of our guest speakers were kind enough to allow me to use recorded excerpts from their presentations on the show, and I thank them for that. Now, the original idea of the modern Olympic Games was to bring feuding countries together in friendly competition under the values of excellence, friendship, and respect in order to create more lasting world peace. Yet in the 20th century, and in particular during the Cold War, the Games became political events that pitted the ideologies of capitalism and communism in a sort of proxy battle for international symbolic supremacy. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, the power dynamic has changed somewhat, but tensions between various nations have continued in symbolic ways nonetheless, through athletic contests themselves, but also in lavish displays of nationalism. Sometimes these tensions are symbolized in pompous ceremonies by host nations and in statements by medal winners and government leaders. Now, this Olympics is no different in this nationalistic respect, but unless you've been living under a rock or off the grid, you know that it was postponed a year due to COVID-19 and that now, under a state of emergency, the Japanese government has made the difficult decision to ban all live spectators for the Games. The lack of fans will change the competition and Japan will lose a ton of money, but the Games will go on and that will save Japan from losing face, which may be more important than anything else. The Olympics have long been important signifiers of national virility. For example, the Tokyo Olympics of 1964 was a transformative event for Japan as it, as it marked its emergence from the ashes of World War II, as well as its reemergence in the spheres of international economics and politics. Similarly, Beijing's hosting of the 2008 Summer Games marked an important moment in China's placement in the global community. But it's not just about politics. The Olympics are also really, and I mean really big business. As one of our colloquium speakers, Professor Andy Billings of the University of Alabama said in his presentation, the Olympics are a huge television spectacle and they still dominate even in an age of media fragmentation. With all that money being made and all this national pressure on the line, there are bound to be problems. And among some scholars who write about the Olympics, these so-called mega events have become controversial for a number of reasons. The International Olympic Committee's mission is to quote, contribute to building a peaceful and better world by educating youth through sport practiced without discrimination of any kind and in the Olympic spirit, which requires mutual understanding with a spirit of friendship, solidarity, and fair play. But some scholars say there's ample evidence to suggest that the games have become less about these stated intentions and more about the accumulation of capital. One key controversy that scholars have examined involves the ways in which powerful domestic efforts for nation building and powerful forces of global capital have led to the displacement of local residents in order to build the costly infrastructure to host the games. And then they've highlighted the rapid construction requirements that operating the games require and the ensuing environmental degradation that follows. In fact, many of the sports stadiums that are built for these Olympics in recent years go unused after the games end. So in this colloquium, we welcomed guest speakers whose expertise enlightened us on a range of topics related to the upcoming Tokyo Olympics. And we explored issues such as economics, marketing and media, gender equality, ableism and disability, sustainability, anti-Olympic protests and COVID-19 pandemic health and safety. In the end, my goal in facilitating the colloquium was to explore what can be done to better achieve the stated goals of Olympism. 
So without further ado, let's dive into the presentations. First, let's listen to Professor Billings describe just how dominant Olympic media broadcasts have become. joined now by Professor Andy Billings, who's the executive director of the Alabama Program in Sports Communication and Ronald Reagan Chair of Broadcasting in the Department of Journalism and Creative Media at the University of Alabama. Professor Billings is an award-winning scholar and educator, and he's been interviewed over 500 times by various media outlets from the New York Times to the Los Angeles Times to ESPN, and has also consulted with many sports media agencies and is a past holder of the invited chair of Olympism at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Professor Billings, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today, especially given the uh, time difference. We really, really appreciate it, and we're grateful to have you. Not a problem. Happy to join you folks. Before I even begin, I think it's important for you to understand the origins of why I look at this. I've been looking at Olympic media now for a quarter century, believe it or not, 25 years, since the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. And I was a graduate student at Indiana University. I grew up in a very, very small town. Got a second stoplight when I was in college, not because we needed it, just to show progress. We got the McDonald's, but that knocked the Dairy Queen out of business. We couldn't handle both. I mean, we're talking small, we're talking small America. And uh, for me, the Olympics were this ticket to a much broader world. The fact that I could be sitting in LaGrange, Indiana, watching, you know, on a 13-inch TV and yet see people from other nations competing in other nations and other time zones, speaking other languages and things like that was very exciting to me. So when I started to figure out what I wanted to study, I knew I wanted to do sports media, but I really started looking at what is it that we learn from the Olympics, which are kind of like... I know Christine Brennan calls it kind of this torch that becomes an ember. You know, it, it shines brightly for 17 days and then it goes away and then it comes back and we know it was there, but whatever it was. And so really what I have, what I've done over the course of, of my career, I've certainly looked at many other sports media things, but I've always come back to the Olympics for what does it tell us about gender, what does it tell us about race? What does it tell us about nationality? And, and what are the responsibilities that are, that are subsumed within that? And I was very fortunate about 10 years into the whole thing. I was teaching at Clemson University at the time and the host of the Olympics, Bob Costas, his son was going to Clemson. And so he, he agreed to come speak for our class and uh, that became uh, a friendship that we still maintain to this day. And he opened up doors to look inside the NBC mechanism to see how do they, how do they put on this, this huge, huge, and I'll, I'll get to the numbers here to give you a sense of how big Olympic media really is. Despite all sorts of narratives you hear about Olympic media ratings going down, the Olympic telecast 
has won over 98% of its time slots in the last, since the turn of the century, in the last 20 years. The only time that anything ever got a higher rating than an Olympic telecast was at the peak of American Idol, I think in 2006 for the Winter Olympics. Other than that, the Olympics always wins. And really, the only question now, this is how dominant the Olympics are in the age of media fragmentation. The only question now is how much bigger it is than the rest of the highest rated networks. So it tends to be, at least for the last summer Olympics, the Olympics on NBC got a higher rating than the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh networks combined because hardly anything can draw a number anymore. Live sports draws a number and the Olympics still is appointment television for a lot of people. So short answer is yes, Olympic ratings are down, but very slightly and not remotely as much in comparison to their competition. So the Olympics become this really key element because it's one of the few things we'll watch the ads for, we'll stay on for an entire night. Uh, it's, it's huge. You know, there's a reason why my first book was Olympic Media Inside the Biggest Show on Television. I make that case. So that's number two. Number three, approximately five billion minutes of NBC's Olympic telecast is now streamed. However, that's really small compared to the 150 billion minutes that were consumed via television for the last Summer Olympic Games in Rio. So is streaming trending up? You bet. Is linear television streaming you know, trending down? Slightly, yes. But we're still talking about 5 billion versus 150 billion. This is still very much a television product, much more than anything on a website or a mobile app. Certainly with the younger population, streaming is a little bit more popular, but it really gets into what does it mean to follow the Olympics for a younger person? This, this notion of, yeah, I follow the Olympics, but I do it on social. I do it with video clips. I don't necessarily sit and watch hours on end. But the 5 billion versus 150 billion, I think is very useful there. NBC employs over 3,000 people for the Olympic telecast, which is roughly 800% more than any other sports media division in the United States, except for ESPN. ESPN has so many tentacles, you know, that it could start to rival that. But what it really means is the majority of people who are putting together NBC's Olympic telecast do not work day to day for NBC. They, they are you know, hired guns. They are people who are working for you know, Learfield Sports with college football or Raycom or you know, what, what, whatever those things are. Or even for some of the direct rival networks because a lot of those networks want the visibility of the Olympics. So Fox, CBS, ABC, they're all still likely to say, yes, you can go work the Olympics and then come back to us and your profile will be bigger. So it's one of those things that's really a feather in your cap. And many people in the sports world, they'll talk about the number of Super Bowls they've worked and the number of Olympics they've worked. NBC holds workshops 
to perfect their Olympic telecast. And they focus on storytelling and trying not to be too nationalistic. If you had all the different versions of the Olympics that were rendered all around the world, we want this to be the one that anyone, American or non-American, would say this is the highest quality, best storytelling there is. So to that end, you will never, or at least hopefully never again, hear anyone on the NBC Olympic telecast refer to American athletes as us or non-American athletes as them. They have put a ban on personal pronouns, we, they, whatever it is, to try to really make it a sense of, hey, we're, we're telling a story and yes, we're going to show Americans more, but that doesn't mean it's an us against them. And you certainly find, you know, I, I've seen examples, for instance, you know, of the Olympic telecast in Australia, where they're so obsessed with swimming and their Australian swimmer that the cameraman accidentally cropped out the gold medal winner because they were so focused on the Australian swimmer who didn't medal. You don't tend to have those cases there. There certainly are cases way back in the history. I think Al McGuire, when he was doing basketball in the 1980s, was, I think the, the term they used was gently reminded not to talk about we or us in regard to the men's basketball team there. But really, that is ingrained within the NBC product. And really, the goal is get out of these pre-produced profiles and let the sportscaster tell the story. So they'd rather than doing a pre-produced, let's get behind the scenes thing, instead they'd love to have the sportscaster there because then you're still live at the event and that's what draws the eyeballs. They don't want to think, oh my gosh, we're not anywhere close because we're looking at something pre-produced. Thank you very much, Professor Billings. That really resonates with me and my experience in Japan because the Japanese broadcaster of the Olympics is NHK and that's sort of like the BBC of Japan, and they, they definitely focus on Japanese athletes more than uh, any other. Uh, I understand you've also done quite a bit of research on gender and its relationship to Olympic media, so I wonder if you can talk about the London Olympics. Not a problem. The London Olympics, which was 2012, was the first on record to show women more than men. Now here, what I'm talking about is the primetime telecast, which is your evening telecast. That is where you get the large majority of your viewers. And if you're going to make a profit off the Olympics, it's going to be off the advertising revenue in the evenings. It had always been the case that men received much more coverage in the Winter Olympics than the women did. And it was close, but never quite to the notion of parity for the Summer Games, but it was always closer there. In 2012, women were shown more. And that repeated again in 2016 and in 2018. So in three of our last four Olympics, women athletes were shown even more than the men. Uh, you can look at lots of reasons for that. I think the biggest thing is in each of those Olympics, women athletes won the majority of the medals for the United States. And so it really seemed to be a follow the medals type programming strategy. We, we don't care male or female as long as you see red, white, and blue winning gold, silver, and bronze. So I, I think that's important to juxtapose. We're talking about a real difference 
in what we see in sports media for women compared to everything else. In everything else, it depends on what you look at. Sports Center, it's 1% female. Sports newspapers, it's 2% female. Certain other things, you can get up to 5% female, but it's very, very male. The Olympics is not. And at this point, it's now majority female for a variety of reasons. Professor, can I interrupt you really sure. quickly? Just a quick question sure. that on that point. Do, are you aware of whether at ESPN there's a fear that if they did expand their coverage to more women's sports that they would lose some of their core viewers? You know, I ESPN does better with hiring, but not necessarily with producers. And I think that they'll admit that there too. I think what we found and this is true for ESPN, but it's true you know, elsewhere too. We assumed once we got an infinite number of cable channels and an infinite number of websites that that would mean, hey, we can highlight women more. What happened was instead of the breadth that we thought would happen where women would get more coverage, instead we got depth. So what I mean there is, yes, you can find the NWSL, you know, the Women's Soccer League, but you're not going to find it on the core ESPN channel. What are you going to find there? You're going to find more depth in the men's team sports. So you're going to get endless coverage of the NFL draft, or you're going to get a whole ton of coverage of the hot stove league for baseball, or you're going to, you know, get talking heads opinions on what trades need to happen or, you know, whatever it is. Those become 12 month a year sports and that that really pushes everything out. And yeah, that's most all women's sports, but it's truthfully anything else that isn't baseball, basketball and football, golf, tennis, NASCAR. Most of those things get pushed to other networks too. With the Summer Olympic evening telecast, over 95, over 90% and usually over 95% is dedicated to just five sports. I'll be very curious to see if this happens with Tokyo as well. So you can probably even guess what those sports are if you've sampled the Olympics. Gymnastics, track and field, swimming, diving, beach volleyball. That's it. There are 36 different disciplines, I think, now in the Olympics. But these are the five sports they found appeal to the widest audience and also are really good for commercial breaks. So what we mean there is you can show a gymnastics rotation, you can show a swimming final, and then you can even bounce to another sport. That's very difficult to do for a basketball game. You know, if you're committed to a basketball game, you're, you're kind of there for at least an hour and a half, if not two hours. They would rather do kind of a jigsaw puzzle where you do a six-minute segment here, a nine-minute segment there, and go back and forth. But really... That becomes the Olympics. The other reason why they program it that way, of course, is the United States tends to do really well in, in those sports. Uh, so I'll get to that in another point here, but really it's all about, hey, we can see Americans doing well. And that's the reason why maybe we aren't watching some of these other sports where we really aren't in medal contention you know, at all. Thank you very much, Professor. I wonder if we can go back to that issue of gender in Olympics media. Can you talk a little bit more about 
how female athletes and male athletes are described in these media broadcasts? Men and women in my research have been found to be described differently, but it's usually not overt sexism. Instead, it's more covert sexism. So you have different reasons why they'll describe the success or failure of a male or female athlete, but many times, not always, uh, many times there is a, a reason for it. That doesn't mean a justification, you know, it's, it's different there. But for instance, in gymnastics, you might be talking more about the experience of a male gymnast than you would a female gymnast. Well, why is that? Well, if you look at gymnastics, male gymnasts are disproportionately likely to still be competing well into their late 20s, sometimes even beyond. So they might have more experience than say, you know, Simone Biles, who still, you know, was a teenager when she was winning all those gold medals. It's hard to talk about the experience of an 18 year old or a 17 year old. Thank you very much, Professor. You know, you mentioned Simone Biles, the very popular African-American gymnast um, who has been wildly successful in the Olympics. And so I wonder if you can talk about the intersection of race and Olympic media now. The Summer Olympics are racially stacked. I'll get you know to what that means here in a second. While the Winter Olympics simply lack diversity. So sports stacking, is the concept of you can have racial diversity within something like the Olympics, but that doesn't mean you have consistent diversity in every single event. So you might have a telecast that you say there's many white, black, Hispanic, or Asian athletes all competing there, but it's many white and Asian athletes competing in swimming finals and then you move to track and field where you're disproportionately going to have uh, black athletes in those finals. So we have this sense of racial diversity, but they're stacked. And we can get into all the sociology of the reason for that. It has nothing to do with any notion of a certain race not being able to do something and everything to do with the geography in which they come from and really the history in which barriers were put up for different races. The Winter Olympics, for the most part, are very, very white. And sometimes people are surprised when they actually are presented with the numbers, just how white they are. About 85% of all participants in the Winter Olympics identify as white or Caucasian. I still remember there was a friend of mine who you know, was, was researching the Olympics long before I was, Michael Reel. And he was once speaking in Africa in the 1980s and talking about the Winter Olympics to a group of reporters. And at the end of the talk, the reporters all kind of looked surprised and looked at one another. And then one of them finally said, okay, I'll ask, what is this Winter Olympics you speak of? And it really was eye-opening to him to say, it's not just that they don't compete or don't do well for many nations, especially where snow is just not going to be part of the equation or access you know, to things, it's entirely a non-entity. It simply isn't there. So I, I think it's important to understand those racial dynamics as well. NBC tends to avoid race and tends to focus, at least in the interviews I've done with producers, to say race is done through the camera work with the exception of valid firsts. You know, if Gabby Douglas becomes the first 
African-American female to win the women's all around in gymnastics, which I think happened in 2012, then Bob Costas would note that. But for the most part, they're not going to talk about race. They say, we'll let the camera do that. The problematic element, of course, there is it reduces race to skin pigment. It reduces race to simply what is visual. But I also understand the trepidation uh, that people have sometimes when talking about race or trying to talk about race in countries in which they might never have been. That tends to be what NBC does with racial dynamics there. That is so fascinating, Professor. So race is reduced to skin pigment, as you say, and it's mediated primarily through cameras and almost always avoided in the commentary of Olympic announcers, unless it's a, a first of some kind. So it almost seems like NBC tries to take a colorblind approach to race and its coverage. Now, I know you've also done research on the proportion of coverage that is given to American athletes in Olympic TV broadcasts. And I think you found that Americans win 11 to 13% of the medals but that they're shown about five times that amount in the Summer Olympics and about four times that amount in the Winter Olympic broadcast. Is that true? No, we don't win 11 to 13% of those medals in those five sports I talked about, swimming, diving, gymnastics, track and field, beach volleyball. We win close to 30 there. But for the most part, we're shown way more than those medals would warrant. Now you can get into all sorts of debates there. Trust me, NBC is not gonna make nearly as much money, if any, if they only show uh, American athletes 11 to 13% of the time. Uh, that's a really bad business model. And there's certainly debates that you can have. You can say, well, in Tokyo, maybe they're gonna show American athletes 50 to 55% of the time. That sounds typical, but there are other nations, for instance, that win 1% of the medals and show their home athletes 15% of the time. So you could argue we're at a four to five times ratio, whereas they're at 15 times the ratio. So it depends on your perspective there. But it really, the other thing I guess that's important to note is if Americans are shown that, say, in Tokyo, they're shown... Uh, 55% of the time, of that remaining 45%, a lot of it is simply putting the foreign athlete in the role of the antagonist. You know, if you're, if you're showing a, a beach volleyball match between an American pair and a non-American pair, yes, you're showing the non-American pair part of the time. However, you're only showing them because they're competing against the Americans. So it makes that portion of the telecast even more focused on red, white, and blue. Americans tend to be described in subjective terms, non-Americans or foreign athletes in objective terms. What I mean there is things that aren't immediately observable, we're more likely to ascribe to American athletes, things like composure or courage or determination are more, more likely to be ascribed to an American athlete. For foreign athletes, even positive things, they tend to be things that you could look up. This person's very tall, they're six foot four. This person has won four medals in a previous Olympics. There are reasons again for that. Many times you're struggling just to pronounce a foreign athlete's name. You, can't, you might not know uh, their background. You might not be able to interview them because of language barriers. So there are reasons why you might default to that. But the, the danger is that you create American athletes that are three-dimensional 
and foreign athletes that are two-dimensional. The more scripted the telecast, the more Americans are promoted over others. So that means the host, Mike Tirico now, or whoever's in the host desk is more likely to promote American athletes. The commercials, more scripted, more likely to promote American athletes than the on-site reporters. On-site reporters, largely, they're describing what's there. And so if it happens to be a non-American athlete competing at the time, they're, of course, going to be talking about them as well. So more scripting equals more Americanism. Hmm, that's really interesting, Professor. What about the medals table? How does that play into all of this? NBC used to not show the medals table, but now does. And I've actually even talked to people at NBC about this notion. They, they showed it, then they stopped, then they showed it again. The worry was that they were promoting the game within the game. And, and there, there are so many problems that you have with the medals table. My favorite description of it is it's a competition on an abacus. And what I mean there is if, you're, if your nation is really good at soccer, the most you can win are two medals, one in men's, one in women's. That's it. If your team's really good at swimming, you can win 40 medals or more. And so then we use these rankings in a way that determine a country's value. And so that might elevate a nation like Australia that really values swimming where there are a lot of medals to be had and might devalue a nation that does really well in a, a team sport that only has one or two medals to win. So that's important. Now NBC shows it because they understand they're the only ones who have the ability to even shape that story. But for a while there, they understood that that's a problem because it becomes like this international ranking of national importance. And there are all sorts of debates sometimes about what do you value most? The number of golds, does that go to the top or is the, the number of medals overall? And so there have been cases where China was the top in one, but we were the top in the other. And there'll be debates on who won the Olympics. So there is, there is this game within the game. Americans tend to overestimate U.S. athlete success. So Americans who are high consumers of an Olympic telecast tend to more accurately guess the success of American athletes. So the more you watch, the smarter you get to some degree. If you just watch a little of it, especially if all you watch is in the evening, of course you're going to think Americans win 30% of the medals instead of 12% because those five events, we do. You know, we win that number. So it's one of those cases where cultivation actually makes you smarter rather than warping your sense of the world, like in a crime show or watching violence or something like that. And the Olympics don't make you more nationalistic. More nationalistic people seek out the Olympics. I hope that makes sense. It's kind of a chicken or egg type thing. It's not A equals B, it's B equals A. So, you know, if you think about that, that's the way we are with any media product, really. If you love to watch reruns of The Big Bang Theory, that doesn't make you love comedy more as much as people who love comedy are more likely to watch reruns of The Big Bang Theory. If you want your sports wrapped in red, white, and blue, 
and in stories about people that you didn't even know at the start of the telecast, the Olympics is for you. And uh, sometimes you might be a huge sports fan and say, this Olympics thing is not working for me. <laughs> um, but it's not that it makes you so yay, raw America, as much as it is people who say yay, raw America, or want to wear the American flag or hoist it from their vehicle, they're more likely to watch the Olympics. Well, thank you so much, Professor. I wanted to ask about mass media and particularly television. Of course, that's how most of us consume the Olympics. And you know, after all, only the most privileged can actually attend the games in person. And then this year, nearly everyone will consume the Olympics in this way because in-person spectators will not be allowed to attend given the coronavirus pandemic and the Tokyo government's decision to do it that way. So do you think this lack of live spectators at the games themselves will impact the NBC broadcasting? It certainly will impact it. I would say it's a major impact for opening and closing ceremonies. We now know the plan is for athletes to put their own medals on to avoid potential unnecessary contact. Those things are going to feel weird. Even a, a medal ceremony, I think, usually is about panning to the family, to the friends, things like that. So you lose those angles of the story. For the main part of the competition, I think we're still used to focusing exclusively on the athlete, the coaches, the profiles that we have there. Most of that stays intact. Something's lost, but not to the degree that where you lose the spectacle that you have in the opening and closing ceremonies. But without question, it's going to be weird. Yes, indeed. And you write in your 2008 book about Olympic media that the media rights holder to the Olympics, NBC, helps to write history. And so I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about what you mean by that. Well, think, think of it this way. If you took every single moment that is broadcast by NBC on their various platforms, on the web, on Peacock, if you took everything from Tokyo and watched it consecutively, it would take about 10 months without sleeping to watch it all. So this is the classic example, I'd say, of media framing or agenda setting, whichever theoretical lens you want to look at there, because they have to select what things are most compelling and put them at the time slots and on the channels or on their website in the prominent locations to secure the largest audience. So they have to decide what it is that really causes people to tune in or tune out. And so certain things get framed in, say gymnastics, beach volleyball, what track and field, swimming, diving, certain things get tuned out. So for instance, in 1988, when NBC took over the Olympics, they discovered that half of the female audience would tune out when boxing was on prime time. Oh, how interesting. And uh, as a result, you don't see boxing on prime time. You see it elsewhere because some people still really care about boxing but it's not something that they want in prime time because they want things that at least people will tolerate until they can find the thing they want more. So even if you're not a big diving fan, it's all, if it's on the same night as the gymnastics finals and you're all in for that, you'll stick around. I see, how interesting. 
And you also mentioned that live sporting events still draw big television ratings and at this moment of media fragmentation. So I wonder why you think that is the case. Why are these live events so popular on television? They simply can't fragment to the same degree that everything else can. I guess the way I'd frame it is we still have broadcasting, but we don't necessarily have broad receiving. And the reason, of course, that we have that is because everyone can be a broadcaster, whether it's a podcast like this one or whether it's uh, video content that you put on on YouTube or all the different streaming services, the more content choices you have, the smaller your audience gets. So what happens there is you only target the things that you think are key moments and especially things that have to be consumed now. This week, we found out that shows like Netflix's The Crown or Apple Plus's Ted Lasso received many Emmy nominations. But, but you might have watched that a year ago. You might have watched it at some point since then. You might choose to watch that at some time before the ceremonies in September. But you don't necessarily have to watch that, even if you're interested, right now. For the Olympics or for the Super Bowl or for major sports, there's still that liveness that's incredibly appealing to people. And it's because it's the biggest story now, and it's reduced to a very footnote of a story in just a couple days. Mm -hmm. So you want to consume it when the cultural conversations happen. You want to consume it along with everyone. You want to bear witness to some degree. And so that's what makes sports special. And that's what has always made sports really the game changer for as technology changes. When did Fox become prominent as a fourth network? It wasn't the Tracy Ullman show. It wasn't Married with Children. It wasn't even the Simpsons. It was when they got the NFL contract. Mm -hmm. Then everyone had to have that. Mm -hmm. So right now, what we're finding is sports are still the game changer. Who's going to get the DirecTV Sunday ticket contract that's mm -hmm. about to expire? That's going to be dictating so much of it there, not only because of the mass audience, but also because of the liveness. Where can you still get people to consume commercials? It's in the breaks of live sports, whether it's yes. the NBA finals or the Olympics or something, you'll sit through them because you want to watch it live. So, so about 4% all commercials get fast forwarded within uh, a sports broadcast, whereas the majority get skipped or fast forwarded for scripted content. Oh, how interesting. And then I wanted to, to ask to follow up on that. The number of hours of Olympic media coverage has just ballooned exponentially since uh, I think the statistic you gave was that in 1960, there were 15 to 20 hours of coverage in the winter and summer games. But by 2004, NBC broadcast 400 hours of the winter games and 1,200 hours for the summer games. So is it just this case of if you build it, they will come? This sort of fear of missing out? on the broadcast just really continues to drive these numbers higher? There's a couple of different factors. So a lot of it is what we're talking about previously with the notion of having more opportunities or ways to consume content. So for instance, it didn't used to be that you would place Olympic content in place of, let's say, MSNBC's daily content or CNBC or something like that. But when everything else is dwindling, when everything else starts to splinter, all of a sudden then, instead of having, let's say, an audience, a normal audience of 4 million, if you have an audience of 1 million and your Olympic can draw 2 million, all of a sudden you now have a way to double your audience on that secondary channel 
by programming it there. Back in the 60s, where you only had three major networks, of course, you had to really focus in on what's going to get enough eyeballs for us to make money. That's not where we're at anymore. This summer, for instance, the top rated program for 2021 is America's Got Talent. Mm -hmm. it, average, it averages 7 million live viewers. That would have gotten you canceled 20 years ago. Now it's number one. Oh, so really? All of a sudden, because everything else splinters, then you can put the Olympics everywhere and still see a goosing of your ratings somewhere. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it, of course, is just it's easier now to broadcast because of technological advances than ever before. So if you're sending, I don't know how many NBC sent over this time. Normally it's about 3,000, but yes. they're likely doing a lot more work that they can from their Stanford offices in Connecticut. But if you're sending all those over there and you've got all the cameras set up and you've got all the commentators there, it really doesn't cost you much more to convey that at least on the web or on Peacock for the avid race walking fan or for the right. person who really wants to watch Table tennis, you can do that. Whereas before it was pretty costly to I be see. able to convey that from some other part of the world. I see. Now I wanna shift gears and talk a little bit about identity, which I know is another uh, key area of focus in your research. So you mentioned in a 2008 paper that you wrote called the, the Games Through the NBC Lens, that as a scholar, it's important to look at what NBC chooses to show, what it chooses to show habitually and what it chooses to avoid. So I'm curious if you could elaborate. Why do you think that's the case? I, I think you just want to have smart, intelligent programming and storytelling. And you can criticize NBC, and I have for many things that they've done. But one thing I, I don't tend to criticize them on is disproportionately show American athletes doing well. That's simply smart programming. Now, I can point out that we're probably going to see about 50% of the coverage devoted to American athletes and about 11, maybe 12% of the medals won by American athletes. So it's about a four to one ratio compared to what you could say they should show. But at the same time, you have to accept the fact that the majority of the Americans tune in to watch American athletes do well. To only show them 11 or 12% of the time would be terrible programming and uh, people would tune out. So NBC's <laughs> got to find a way, A, to give the athletes and the stories and the victories in proportion to the point that people want to tune in. And then also what I think makes this unique is they've got to be able to tell stories in a way that someone you haven't heard of at 7 p.m. is someone that you well up with tears when they win a gold medal at 10 p.m. Other things, we don't have that. We, we might watch Tom Brady win a Super Bowl, but that story's been playing out for decades. Even someone like Giannis in the NBA Finals, most basketball fans have been following his career for several years. That's not the case. Olympians outside of just a handful that we usually have, someone like Simone Biles of today or Michael Phelps of years ago, those people, of course, we've been following them for a long time. But for the mass majority, what we're dealing with is people that we care because they're wearing the red, white, and blue, or they're from some region of the country we are either from or have been to before, or there's some point of connection. Yes. So it's really storytelling in a way that I don't think you get with any other sports product in America. That's quite interesting. And I know from your research that the Olympics are now being watched more by women and NBC coverage is now emphasizing women's events uh, more than they once did. So 
Do you think that these broadcasts by NBC have the potential to transform mainstream American understandings of women in sports? I do. The question is to what degree should you? Mm -hmm. and, and what I mean there is, okay, so what we discover is people will still tune in droves for the Olympics and watch uh, a primetime telecast that three of the last four NBC primetime telecasts have been majority female. Uh, slight majority, but still majority. Whereas the rest of our sports media landscape, it's about 2% women. Yes. So then the question becomes, okay, should we wrap our other women's sports in the American flag and say, hey, this is the reason why the women's World Cup final can get 100 times the rating of the NWSL final in the same year? Or do you say that's a poor way to market American women's sports just to say it has to be an us against them? We can't market women's sports around cities or universities or stories. It's got to be the red, white, and blue. There, there's a potential danger there in making all women's sports nationalized. But if you're trying to find the, the silver bullet for ratings for women's sports right now if it's wrapped in the american flag people will tune in especially mm. when they're as successful as our women are in the olympics or say in the women's world cup yeah i'm, I'm really glad you mentioned nationalism because that's my next question but <laughs> it seems clear to me that the olympics are as, as significant a media event as they are in large part because of nationalism which is of course reinforced through the events and their broadcast as you say you know the Folks who are watching the Olympics oftentimes are attracted to the idea of an American winning against some other nation's athlete. Do you think it will ever be possible to leverage the Olympics to emphasize any kind of global citizenship, even if it is an imagined global citizenship? The reason I ask is because of, obviously we face a lot of global problems right now. And so I wonder whether the Olympics and particularly NBC's Olympic broadcasts could in some ways help solve them, even if it's just by raising awareness of issues like global warming or human trafficking or you know, other kind of global problems that we really need the transnational efforts to solve. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you can. And certainly if you say, what is the one thing that the entire world will pause and look with a collective eye towards something? It's still the Summer Olympics with the World Cup in there, but World Cup functions differently in some ways in that it's just not, it's one sport. If you're not a soccer fan, you're not in. Uh, there's usually only one game at a time, the large majority of the time. So the Olympics is, is unique in that way. Can, can it bolster a sense of global citizenship? Yes. But what our research that I've especially done with Keenan Brown here and with some scholars elsewhere, including in Germany, is that people who love things wrapped and with a national uh, nationalistic tinge, disproportionately tune in for the Olympics. People who don't, who say, I'm not into the flags, I'm not into the pageantry, whatever it is, they don't. What you have there is many times you hear the argument that the Olympics makes you more nationalistic when it appears the opposite is happening, which is people who really love things wrapped in nationalism or patriotism disproportionately seek out the Olympics. Yes. What happens there is the people that you most want to influence or most want to change on some of these issues of global citizenship that you talk about are disproportionately less likely to tune into the games, which is your biggest hindrance there. So yeah, you have potential uh, for that, but at the same time, there is a preaching to the choir element to this because mm -hmm. a lot of the people who really love that no notion of a single international spirit 
they're already in your camp. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And you write in the preface to your book on the production of the NBC Olympic broadcast that, quote, sports bond societies and cultures in ways that nothing else can, close quote. And then you go on to write that there's great responsibility that sportscasters have to tell the story of these sports and their cultural power in a way that depicts all people, regardless of their background, with respect. And you borrow a line from Spider-Man to, to make the point, uh, with great power comes great responsibility. So I'm genuinely interested in the juxtaposition of these ideas. And I wanted to ask you, do you see it as your responsibility as a media scholar to hold the feet of these sportscasters to the fire? Or am I reading this passage wrong? I don't know if it's hold feet to the fire as much as to give data and allow people to interpret it however they wish. A, a lot of what I do in the Olympics requires you to have a bar that you have decided this is what fairness looks like. And I can do that and I can say, gosh, you showed this much that was either fair or unfair. But what I really like to do even more than that is to say, here's the data, use it to become more media literate. I, I am not here to bolster ratings for the Olympics. I'm not here to stifle ratings for the Olympics. I'm here to provide unique data points that my colleagues and I have been able to advance for a while to the point that we can say, here's how things have changed over time. We can have debates on fairness. One that I know happens in the academic world quite a bit is, is 50-50 the bar we should have for men's and women's sports you know, coverage in the Olympics if mm -hmm. the majority of people who are attending the games uh, or who are competing for the games are still men. Uh, mm -hmm. because we still have a slight majority of men competing. I still fall back on the 50-50, A, because the coverage we look at is only at the finals, and we have the same number of people in those finals, you mm -hmm. know, men or women. Mm -hmm. uh, and B, I refuse to use metrics. So the reason we have more men than women competing is because there are still nations that will not let women compete right. in certain apparel or not have the opportunity that their men do. And I refuse to change those metrics that are built on patriarchy and hegemony and some things that we're trying to get past. Yes, but I, I completely but overall, agree. I use that for hypothesis testing and things like that, but I still really try to do you know something different than what anybody in NBC research or ESPN research or whatever it is that I'm looking at. My goal isn't to make you money. My goal isn't to make you a bigger sports fan. It's to say, here's what we know. What does that reveal about our culture? Mm -hmm. And I think that comes through in your book. And it seems to me from reading your work that you do believe Olympic media can help change dominant societal impressions of cultural issues, which you just mentioned, things like patriarchy and hegemony. And so I'm curious to know in an ideal world, and I know this isn't your goal as a scholar, but in an ideal world, what kind of broadcast would you like to see NBC do? I think they're doing pretty well. There's always these errors that will occur. And sometimes you'll say, oh, wow, you, you can't say that. You shouldn't do that. I, I think a good example of one where I said, gosh, you, you got to work to avoid that was five years ago when Katerina Hotsu won the gold medal in the pool and her husband, who was her coach, the phrase was, that's the man responsible for her uh -huh. gold medal. All right. Uh -huh. you, you, you can't say that's problematic. Absolutely. But I also... I worry if we're gonna nitpick every single thing that someone says in the moment, especially for women, this is the opportunity to really mainstream sports 
And if we're going to try to cancel culture, any broadcaster or sportscaster who says something incorrect or that might be taken in the wrong way, I can see networks and producers saying, you know what, it's not worth the risk. Mm-hmm. It's not worth showing those. An example from the last Winter Olympics where I had reporters wanting to know what I thought about it was Chloe Kim uh, had just won a gold medal. And uh, the comment was something like she will have the ultimate bling at prom because she was 18 and she mm-hmm. was a senior in high school. I can't get worked up over that. I just, if we're going to get worked up over that, then I, I worry that the Chloe Kims of the world don't get media coverage because they or don't get their stories told because you're too scared of something like that. I think if an 18 year old guy had a gold medal, that'd be bling at his prom too. So it's, yeah, and I know that's a personal decision to say one thing's over the line and one thing's not, but I do find myself saying, hey, if you're trying to do something as progressive as show women 25 times the proportion of any other sports media, I'm willing to give you a little slack. If you're willing to actually try to go on that third rail and discuss race, obviously, don't say anything racist or anything there, but I'm willing to give you some leeway to try to let that conversation breathe. Mm-hmm. because you're willing to have that conversation. So, so to me, that becomes the primary factor is, was this well-intentioned? Does it deserve a correction as opposed to a cancellation of a person? Do we have to fire someone or can they correcting themselves and working to do something more effectively? It could be a teachable moment for that broadcaster, couldn't it? Yeah. So the last question that I have for you, Professor Billings, is here we are with the Olympics about to start and we're still in a global pandemic, although here in the United States, we have vaccination rates higher than than in Japan, which hasn't hasn't vaccinated its people. And so there won't be any in-person spectators in Japan. And so I'm reminded of this quote that you mentioned in your book about the 1972 games when the IOC chief, Avery Brundage, says, even after 11 Israeli athletes are killed uh, by Palestinian terror, the games must go on. This is this famous quote by Brundage that you mentioned in the book. And so do you think these games should go on? You, more than anyone else, know about the power of Olympic media and, and the power of Olympic sports in that respect. Most people consume the Olympics through media. Because this show is about the power of sports, I just, I'm just yeah. i very curious for your answer to this question. I am not a, pu- a world or public health expert, and so that's very difficult to look at there. What I'll say is I understand why they're going to move forward with it. I get it for a variety of stakeholders. And yeah, we can say the IOC wants their money and 73% of their money comes from media contracts. And that matters. But even for the athletes themselves, for a lot of these sports, their window of peak performance that they've been building toward, that they put their life on hold for is not wide enough for them to just say, you know what, I'll just keep training and I'll come back in 2024. There's a lot of athletes that they've expanded their window a year to try to stay in that peak performance to tremendous sacrifice. And so if you simply look at the athletes and you start to think through some of those things, I start to say, I understand why NBC would still want it going forward. I understand why the IOC would. I understand why the athletes, the coaches, I also understand this is not the games Tokyo (laughs) wish to put on. I have been a very strong supporter of the notion that if Tokyo would like a future games, I think we owe them that, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's 2032, 2036 or beyond. If they would want that to be able to see some more return on their investment, 
I not only think that'd be fair to them, I think it'd be a way to be more environmentally sustainable, to mm -hmm. say, hey, we're going to keep these stadiums and these facilities up uh, to code for the next few years because we know the Olympics is coming back. That makes a whole lot of sense to me because there's no question, we're talking billions and billions of dollars that, that Tokyo and the organizing committee there is not going to be able to, to realize through no fault of their own. That's right. Thank you so much, Professor. This has been really interesting. I really appreciate you taking some extra time here to answer a few more of my questions. I, I enjoyed it. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Have a wonderful rest Thanks. of your day and let's keep in touch. Sounds good. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. I want to thank Professor Billings again for his willingness to speak to our colloquium and also for allowing me to use his speech on the show. I know I learned a great deal from him and his research is persuasive for a number of reasons. First, he has had inside access to see how Olympic media actually works. That kind of access is rare for a researcher, and it gives him a perspective that must be considered. Second, he has been doing this work for a long period of time. And third, I think that his perspective as a small-town Indiana kid who grew up to study one of the world's most important global events really makes you think about how global impacts local and local impacts global. If you'd like to find out more about Professor Billings' work, please visit www.cis.ua.edu and search for his profile under the faculty tab on the left-hand side of the page. That is C as in cat, I as in igloo, and S as in sandwich, which stands for College of Communications and Information Sciences. And of course, the dot UA is for the University of Alabama. We'll have more episodes coming up here on the Olympics, including excerpts from our colloquium, where we explore other Olympic issues, including gender, disability, sustainability, and the anti-Olympic movement. The students who took part in this colloquium asked many insightful questions and wrote some very convincing reflection papers. And what I found so interesting was how many of them latched on to the colloquium speakers who called for major reforms and how the Olympics are governed and operated. So stay tuned for the next episode where we explore some of their reasons why. Thank you everyone for listening and have a great rest of your day.